begin tonight's sermon by just reading once again to you the first vow that Gabriel and Sudrea took this morning in the baptism of Leah. Can I do that? First vow. So I asked Gabriel and Sudrea to stand, and I asked them this. Do you acknowledge the Bible to be the word of God, your only guide in all matters of faith and conduct? You got it? Do you acknowledge the Bible to be the word of God, only guide in all matters of faith and conduct? Gabriel gave what was a resounding (laughs) yes to that question. Here's the thing, though. How would we answer that? How would you answer that if I was to ask you that tonight? How is it that you come to Scripture? Really, though, if we search our hearts, how how do we think about Scripture? You know, do we accept unconditionally that the Bible is God's Word and that we must alter our lives according to what it says? Or is it a bit more like this, that we, yeah, we accept, okay, the Bible's God's word and we agree with most of it until, until it goes against either the prevailing view of society or it goes against, well, how we kind of think things should be done. Which is it really? Well, even if you were to say to me this evening, Andy, actually, I do believe the Bible, to be God's word and our only guide in all matters of, of, of faith, even if you were to say that, here's the thing. Tonight, I think, honestly, honestly, tonight, that is going to be tested. Because what we come to here in First Timothy chapter 2, is surely tonight going to challenge our view of ourselves and our view of our role in the church. And it's going to challenge our view of each other and it may even challenge our view of God. But as we go into this, I just want to say this to you. Surely what is important is not that we cling to the prevailing view of what is a sinful society. And what is important is not that we cling to what is our view, a sinful opinion, you know, a a sinful mind. What is important is we cling to what a holy and perfect and almighty God has said to us, told us in his holy word. So, This is what we'll do. Let's pray. As I pray, I would ask you to pray with me, to pray for me, to pray for yourselves, and to pray that we come humbly tonight before God's word and that we hear what he has to say to us. So let's pray as a congregation. Lord God, we do ask that this Lord's day that we would hear tonight Uh, your voice very clearly. We are sinful and our view and understanding of your word is is often clouded by that iniquity. We pray, Lord, that you would give us tonight instruction that, that stirs us and that 
brings us into line with how you would have your your people live, behave, and most importantly, how we should worship you. Lord God, we, we confess our sin and we cry to you supremely. We cry to you for grace just now. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, friends, um, if you would have a scripture open in front of you, um, you'll, you'll find a Bible there or on the pews. <coughs> if we turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2, let's think about a few lessons that we've got here, a few lessons that God gives his people. First lesson, we learn something here about the prayers of men. Got it? The prayers of men. Do you remember what we're dealing with in this portion of the letter? Here, Paul was given Timothy instructions about how the worship of God should be conducted, wasn't he? Do you remember that? And do you remember how he begun that section? Do you remember what, last week, what was the first thing that he deals with in the idea of the corporate worship of God? Was it the benediction? Was it singing? What was the first thing he dealt with? He dealt with last week public prayer in the worship of God. Now, I need you to see that in this section tonight, Paul's kind of continuing that theme, isn't he? But rather than the content of prayer that he was dealing with last week, do you remember the sort of essence of it last week? He was saying Timothy in public prayer. What was it? It was Timothy pray for the salvation of all kinds of people, wasn't it? Do you remember that? Rather than the content of prayer, tonight here Paul is dealing with or more concerned with the manner, wait for it, the manner in which men And it is a specific instruction for men, the manner in which men should pray. Now, I'm sure you'd agree with me. Lots of people get very excited about (laughs) the posture for prayer that we're told about here in verse 8. What does it say? Paul says, I want men everywhere to lift up their their holy hands in prayer. People love that, don't they? They'll get fixated on this idea. We've got to have our hands up in prayer. What I hope you see is that Paul is much more concerned in that section of Scripture with purity in prayer rather than posture in prayer. Because you know as well as I do, right, that the Bible does not set out one specific posture in prayer. Isn't that right? Like we've got, what do we have? We've got hands lifted up in prayer. But if you go elsewhere in scripture, what, what do you have? You've got the Old Testament priests would stand in prayer. Moses would bow in prayer. You've got instances of people sitting in prayer. You've got people of, who are kneeling, lying flat on the ground. There's not a particular set out posture for prayer. So Paul's not so much concerned with the hands. What's Paul concerned with? Paul's concerned with the heart, not hands. You know, Paul's concerned with the purity of prayer, men's prayer, not so much in the posture. So what is he talking about when he's talking about purity? Look at verse 8 with me again, would you please? What does he say? I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in in prayer without anger. Without anger or disputing. Now, what's he doing there? 
Why is he mentioning this anger and disputing? Well, that sort of rebuke about temperament is certainly not alien to the pastoral epistles. And I think we can fairly safely deduce that maybe infighting was a bit of a problem in the Ephesus church. So you got it. You know, maybe perhaps the men of that congregation, can you imagine it? Maybe they are at each other's throats quite a bit, okay? And so what does Paul say about this? He says, that sort of thing, entirely inappropriate for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Disputing, it must be resolved before we come before our God in prayer. Now, clearly, friends, what we're seeing there tonight has got a lot to say to the people of London City Presbyterian Church. But even more clearly, surely it's got something to say to the men in this room just now. I wonder, guys, do you, do you see in those verses there, that verse... Do you see what it is that your God expects you to be? What does he expect you to be? He expects his sons to be men of prayer. I wonder if that, um, does that, does that sound like you? If you're a man in here, do you lead your life in prayer? Do you lead your family in prayer? Do you lead your spouse in prayer? One of the abiding memories that I've got of my childhood. Now, it's an abiding memory, I think, because it it would happen so often. But we're in our house. I'm just a little kiddie, right? Just a little toddler. And I remember this vividly. Our house in Inverness. And I would go into the kitchen. Open the door at the kitchen. Or open the door at the kitchen. Because I was so wee. And I would go in and I would see my father and he would be seated at the dining table and he would be deep in prayer. This would happen all the time. And I knew, even as a little kiddie, I knew that this was serious. Like here was a man who wasn't just praying when it was family worship and he wasn't just praying uh, for a few seconds on the way out of the door. No, no, no. Here was a man who had set aside time in the middle of his day to do what? To wrestle with his God in prayer. Is that a picture that seems familiar? I mean, is that you as a Christian man? Is it? Is that us, guys? Even if so, do you see the impediment to prayer? That God's word is bringing to us here. Do you see it? What is Paul saying here? He's saying anger must be utterly absent. Like we can't expect our prayers to be answered as men. If we are holding grudges against other Christian men. It doesn't happen like that. And do you see that scripture tells us that time and time again? Like what does it say in First Peter? First Peter Again, God deals with men specifically. He deals with anger again specifically. This time it's against our wives. And, and what do we learn in First Peter? Men, be considerate of your wives. Why? What's that about? 
so that your prayers may not be hindered. Do you see this, men? Are you listening? Are you hearing what God is saying to you tonight? We, as Christian men, are supposed to seek our God in prayer. But first, what happens? We seek peace with each other. So we get a lesson in First Timothy. We get a lesson about the prayers of men. Okay, second thing that we see in this portion of Scripture is this. We learn something about the beauty of women. So we've, we're, we're flicking here, aren't we? We're moving from uh, the men, from focusing on the men. Now we move to the women. And we move to the, what is the, a slightly controversial subject of how women dress. Uh, let me just simply read God's word to you. Verse 9, you can follow along. Would you do that? Verse 9. God says, I also want women to dress modestly. With decency and propriety and not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes. Okay. I'm sure you'd agree that, that we see two threads there. There's two threads, aren't there? Like there's definitely in that a warning about immodesty, isn't there? So you think about that. I mean, think about where it is that Paul's writing to. Where's he writing to? Right to Ephesus. Now, what, do we know anything about Ephesus? What do we know about Ephesus? We know that it was a grossly immoral place. Ephesus had that. Remember the temple of Artemis with the accompanying temple prostitutes. And so what is God saying to the people in Ephesus? What is he saying to Christian women then and Christian women tonight? Surely he's saying don't dress like that. I guess not suitable. Don't dress as a Christian woman for sexual attention. Don't dress showing too much flesh. Why not? Because it is not suitable for a child of God. You see it, don't you? There's this thread of, there's this warning against, uh, about immodesty. But there's also definitely a warning about vanity as well. My gran was a beaut. My gran was not a Christian woman. And uh, until the day that she died, my gran was obsessed with the way she looked right up to the end. You know, she was just... She was very exact about how she looked in her hair and her, and her clothes. And she would say, she said this to my mom, she said it to my brother, she said it to myself. She said, um, she said, it, it would be better to be dead than to be out of fashion. <laughs> better to be dead than to be out of fashion. That was my grandmother. Now maybe I think the Ephesian women they may have agreed with that. The, the, the fashion at the time in the Hellenistic world was for women to have their hair 
as high as you could have your hair, you know, to have your hair nicely elaborately done and to have your hair also embellished with gold and jewelry and pearls and so forth, okay? And what does Paul say about this? He says, no, Christian women, don't do that. Don't have braided hair or gold or expensive clothes. So do you see the theme, don't you? This is about vanity. God's word saying to Christian women tonight here as much as in Ephesus, don't be preoccupied with how you look. Christian women, do not be overly concerned with your appearance. And what's the context? You see it? He's saying, do not be particularly concerned with your appearance. Yes, here. The context is the corporate worship of God. Is it not? Friends, the, the church of Jesus Christ is not a, it is not a catwalk, is it? I mean, in this, we have to be exactly opposite to the secular world. People dress out there, why? So that they receive attention, so that people look at them, right? In here, do you see why it mustn't be like that? We do not want people to look at us, to to have the attention on us in here. Why not? Because in here, surely we want all the attention focused on the Lord Jesus Christ. But maybe you see that Paul's focus here is not on how women shouldn't dress, but on how they should dress. See, let me read this to you. You don't have to follow this along, because I'm going to read it from a different translation of the Bible, okay? I'll read what Paul says, but I'll read it from the ESV. Some of you might have it, some of you don't. Now listen to this. So you see where we're, where, where we're at. Paul said, don't dress like that. Don't dress immodestly. And, and don't be overly concerned with how you are dressed as a woman. So we're asking then, okay, how should a Christian woman dress? How should a Christian woman dress in here? What does Paul say? I'll read it to you, the ESV. Adorn yourselves then with what is proper for a Christian woman. And he says this. Adorn yourselves with good works. Do you hear what it is that God is saying to you this evening? He wants Christian women to dress themselves in the service of the saints. And so uh, tonight all I do is surely lay that before the Christian women of the congregation. And I would ask you as Christian women to give some serious and prayerful thought to what Paul is saying, to what God is saying. Is there vanity if you search your heart? Do you need to consider how it is that you're dressing? Or ask yourself this, are you more concerned with your appearance at church than your service of the church? If so, You need to bring that to God. Because what we're seeing here tonight is that true beauty for a Christian isn't in how we look. For God, true beauty for a Christian is in how we serve. So we see something of the beauty of women. Okay, thirdly, let's move on. Thirdly, 
we'll learn also something about the role of women. So the prayers of men, the beauty of women, now the role of women. Okay, when it comes to gender in the life of the church, the danger is that we think about this in the same way as society. The danger is that we adopt secular thinking about the gender roles in the church. And I'll tell you what I mean. Let me just try and unpack that. And please follow me on this. What does society say? Society says that any difference in function between a man and a woman, that that necessarily speaks to inequality. Do you see what I mean or not? Let me unpack it a little bit further. If we say a man's job is A, (laughs) and a woman's job or a woman's function is B, society instantly tells us that is us affirming inequality. Do you see what I mean? So any differentiation in function, they say necessarily that speaks to inequality. And I want you to see tonight that that is a purely unbiblical way of looking at the world. Think about the Godhead. What do we have in the Godhead? We have a differentiation in function. Father has a different function in salvation to Son in the Godhead. But what are they? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, equal persons in the Godhead. So, a differentiation in function does not necessitate any inequality. And we need to grasp this when we're wrestling with what Paul says about the roles in the church. So, I read this verse just to stir everyone up this morning. Uh, So, I'll read it again. Look at verse 12. Paul sets out for us a prohibition, doesn't he? What's his prohibition? Verse 12, just have a look. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. I do not permit a woman to teach or have an authority over a man. What does that mean? What does it mean? Okay, is it then a blanket ban on the idea of a Christian woman teaching? Would you go for that? Would you take that box? No, it doesn't mean that. Like think about what you've got later on. You've got in Titus, you've got Christian women instructing other Christian women. Or you go to Acts, what have you got? Whoa. You've got Priscilla teaching, involving, certainly informing, instructing. Ah, Paulus, this isn't a blanket ban on the idea of a Christian woman teaching. What have we got to do? We've got to remember the context. What's the context? Paul's doing what? He's giving Timothy instructions about the corporate worship of God, isn't he? So do you see what this is? This is Paul saying, I do not permit a woman to teach in the corporate worship of the church. Or I'll put it more bluntly and you can fight me later on this. God is saying here in this verse, no. God is forbidding in this verse. Female preachers. 
in the life of corporate worship. He's forbidding that in this verse. And I know, look, I know the, the responses we have to this. Um, I worked for many years with a lovely Christian woman who wanted to talk about this a lot. And she would say to me, it's not what Paul's saying. This isn't a universal ban on female preachers in the worship service of God. This is about Ephesus. Have you heard that? That's the argument. There was a couple of people, a couple of women in Ephesus. And they were adamant and they were strong and they were volatile and they were preaching heresy. And Paul's writing to them. You heard that argument? There's problems with that argument. One, there's nothing historically or biblically to suggest that there were these couple of volatile women. But that's nothing compared to the other argument. Paul here in front of you gives the reason why there is this prohibition on women preachers. And there's nothing about volatile women in Ephesus. What does he say? Look at his argumentation. Look what God's word says. Gives us two reasons. One, he appeals to creation. Look at verse 13. Women mustn't preach. Why? Because Adam was formed first. Do you see his point? In creation, God has established male headship. There is this order God has established in creation. And God wants that order in the worship of his holy name. So he appeals to creation too. Look at it. He appeals to the fall. Look at verse 14. So women shouldn't preach. Why should women not preach? Because woman was, Eve was deceived first. Do you see it? The problem in the fall was what? Satan tried to usurp that divinely ordained order. Who does he go to first? He goes to the woman first. He's trying to reverse this God-given order of things. And God says, I do not want that rebellion. I do not want that reordering in the worship of the church. It's not just Ephesus. It isn't just Ephesus. He appeals to creation. This is a prohibition of female preachers in the life of the church universally. That still leaves us with a question. What then is the role of women in the church? If God is ruling out the expository preaching, what then is a woman's role in the life of the church? I'm going to read you a quote. I love this quote. The author says this. In the life of God's church... A woman can do, ready? A woman can do anything an unordained man can do. Do you see it? A woman in the life of God's church can do anything a man who is not a better can do. And I just want you to see what Paul highlights here. Look, he gives us one glorious element of that in verse 11. And it's wonderful in verse 11. Do you see what he says? He says, a woman should, what? Learn. And we're in danger of freaking out a little bit there and think, wait a minute, that doesn't sound, you know, Andy, you're saying that that's glorious and wonderful, but it sounds a bit misogynistic here. A woman should learn? Eh? 
Do you see, though, who he is writing to? He's writing into the Hellenistic world. And they get a wonderful press. But here's the thing. They still viewed women as possessions. They, very bluntly, they thought women were stupid. They thought women were unintelligent. They weren't worthy of being educated. What does God's word say here, though? He says, no, you've got it wrong. Women are equal. Absolutely equal. They shouldn't be sidelined. They must serve, but they must be incorporated in learning. They must learn about the great things of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we might not like this. And it's certainly misunderstood. But I would say to you as a congregation, we need to embrace what we have got in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Why? Because it's God's word. And to the women I say, you embrace this because what you've got in front of you in 1 Timothy chapter 2 is the path to godliness. We'll end with a fourth thing, a short thing. We learn something also about the salvation of women. The salvation of women. Um, I was thinking this week about my higher English exam. <laughs> it was my prelim exam. I thought going really well. You know, I was in the, the, uh, the exam hall. And I don't know if you've sat an English exam, but you've got sort of, certainly in Scotland, you had uh, set essay questions on a book that you were given. And I had sort of spent the last, whatever, couple of hours really wrestling with some hard questions, uh, essay questions. And the time was against me, but I got to the end of the essay questions and I sort of sat back and looked at my paper and thought, oh, I've done not a bad job there, quite happy with myself. Until I realized right at the bottom it says, please turn over. <laughs> I turned it over and there was still an essay question that I, I had no time to, to, to answer. Kind of like that here a little bit, isn't it? Like with reverence. You know, we uh, have battled through what I'm sure you agree is quite some tough stuff, isn't it? Like the anger of men, vanity the role of women. And maybe we sort of sit back or relieved that we've got through it. And then what happens? We look down and we see what is surely one of the most misunderstood or contentious verses in all of Scripture. Look at verse 15. Women will be saved through what? Childbearing. Women will be saved through childbearing. What does it mean? Uh, some people, I read this week as well, some people and commentators, they understand this to not be about spiritual salvation, but about physical, the physical salvation. You know the, the sort of idea that uh, women will be saved through childbearing, that it's the ultimate sort of purpose for a woman. You know, a woman will only be truly, properly satisfied and fulfilled if she has a number of children don't know what you think of, of that idea. If it's not offensive, then surely it's at least unconvincing. No, surely what Paul is talking about here is what he's been talking about in the, the earlier part of the chapter. And surely he's talking about a spiritual salvation, isn't he? And he's talking about how a soul can be saved. So what is he saying? He's surely saying that women, like men, will be saved through... 
the child that will be born to a woman. He's saying that the women can be saved through the bearing of this one child, this one offspring born to a woman. And if you think about the context, it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Because where's Paul in his mind here? Isn't he in Genesis 3? He's just been talking about creation. He's just been talking about the fall. And what do we learn? What do we read in Genesis 3? We learn that a woman would bear a seed and offspring. And that offspring would grow to crush the serpent's head. We read that woman would bear what? A savior. And I just want to end like this. I, I, how are you, are you coping with the sermon? Are you coping with the portion of scripture? Is your nose out of joint? Well, how does Paul end it? What is he doing there? What is he talking about? Is he talking about you? He's not talking about me. He's not talking about men. He's not talking about women, really. What is he doing? He's talking about Jesus. And isn't that it? Aren't we just far too concerned about ourselves? And even in the, the worship of the church and our own rights and how we appear and how we come across. But what is God doing here? What is he saying to us? He's saying this here in First Timothy chapter 2 is the best way of doing what? Is the best way of the church glorifying and bringing honor and praise to his son Jesus Christ. And so in light of that, I just want to say this to you. Please don't, I don't know, don't let the sermon and this portion of scripture just pass you by. Don't let this stuff evaporate into the night. That's the temptation that we were in here tonight. We listen to this, we read this, and then we just carry on as normal. Guys, is there a problem with anger? Is there a problem with prayer? Take it to God. Women, do you need to rethink your idea about dress, about service of the saints? Your ideas even about submission in light of this. And let's do it. Let's, you know, change in the power of the Holy Spirit, London City Presbyterian Church. Why? Because it's God's word. And if we align ourselves to what this says here, what happens? You and I in this congregation will better honor Jesus, the one through whom men and women can be saved from their sin. Let's pray.